invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. We're back in Matthew's Gospel, and we're coming to the kind of around the bend in terms of uh, what's there. But uh, there's a lot there and a lot to think about in the culture that we live in. Uh, This is a well-timed chapter of the Bible for the times that we are in. And it's timing that only God could put together for us because this is a principled plan for how to reach the world through the course of persecution. Uh, There's coming persecution. There's also persecution that is upon us. There's real dynamics and real decisions in terms of the implications of what you say and what's going to happen to you, what you're on record for these days. I was in our elder prayer time this morning and heard that a pastor in Finland is, uh, has been incarcerated for something that he wrote down in 2004 on uh, the biblical pattern and plan for marriage, monogamous marriage between a husband and a wife. Now is hate speech there and it is uh, actionable. So here we are. And me being a verbal processor, I have a lot on record, I have a lot in print. And I don't care. Um, We have to preach. We have to be ready. We have to be on the offense. We have to be those who are crusaders in the mission. Not for glory's sake. Not with an edge or attitude to lead by the chin or to be unwise to uh, get ourselves in trouble. There's no uh, romance or, or glory in even martyrdom, really. We just want to be a witness for Christ. We want to be faithful. We want to be those who are on the mission, not off the mission. We're going to be those who, in whatever sphere of influence, we can um, influence people for Christ. We want to reach people's hearts, and we want to do it um, in a way that is uh, worthy of God's glory. Not in a way that stifles the message or is offensive because we offended people, but because we gave them Christ and people will stumble over the gospel, but we want them to see Christ and be saved. We want people to be part of the mission. And so Jesus in Matthew 10 gives what I've, what I've called a war manual. It's a manual for how to proceed in what God has called us to do. And it's for the apostles in particular, but it's for the church, specifically the church in the last days. And that's what we're living in. We have been since the birth of the church at Acts 2. But these are the final days that we are in as we give the gospel. And as things are approaching more and more in um, our times that show us that the time is closing and coming to a culmination. Uh, just to review this chapter, the beginning first four, four verses is the calling of the twelve. These are the ragtag apostles, not perfect men, but available men, men of different backgrounds who were available to become fishers of men, to become those who would uh, be available coming out of uh, racketeering, out of uh, strange backgrounds, all coming together as one brotherhood, even a zealot in here who used to be, uh, you know, anti anti-church and all of these things, and then he became a believer. We learned all about these ordinary men who became extraordinary witnesses. They were sent on mission and commissioned in verse verses 5 through 15, so called and commissioned to go out as Christ's missionaries, Messiah's missionaries, house to house to the lost um, the lost Israelites, the house of Israel, loving them, giving the gospel to them first. And then the caution, so from calling, commission, then the cautionary verses of verses 16 through where we ended last week in verse 22, where this is what it costs to follow Christ on this mission. This is what 
you're going to be in for. This is how caution turns into inspiration. The stakes are this high. The battle is this hard. The mission and journey is before us and it's worth dying for and giving our lives to Christ so that people will come to new life. And that's the caution. And now we come to Christ giving some comfort. Verses 23 through 31. There's still cost here, but there, there's comfort in the cost. Jesus is with, with us through the battle. And how do we persevere through it? Let me read the first section of comfort beginning at verse 23. I'm going to read just down to verse 25. It says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? You say, where's the comfort in that? How is this comforting? How is this helping me that these things are going to happen to me if and when we are following Christ on this mission? Well, first of all, they are persecuted from town to town. And we know that this is the testimony that we saw in the book of Acts as it plays out. The crowds are stirred and they're moving and providence is happening as Doors close, doors open, as riots ensue, they escape, sometimes imprisoned, sometimes freed by angels. We've seen that, saw that in the life of Peter. Some will die. What's happening in the midst of this? Well, there's a real sense in the beginning of verse 25, and I hit on this last week, that Christ is our sufficiency. And it's in the phrase, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Let me ask this question. Is it enough for you in your lifetime to be like Jesus, come what may, come what may, is it enough? Are you content for your life to be measured in light of being like Jesus? Is that sufficient? Contentment has been on my mind lately. And the idea that Jesus being the answer for our contentment is an amazing thing to grasp and grapple with, to understand that it's enough to not try to have a better life than Jesus did, but have a life like Jesus had. And in this case, we can parallel what the apostles were being called to with what Jesus was experiencing, giving the gospel, giving the truth, meeting people where they are in the highways and byways is the way that the Lord brings people into your path. You give truth, you live truth, and you move along God's providential plan as you do so. And it's enough to be like Jesus, not to try to be more than the master, but to be like him. So this kind of comfort that comes in the name of contentment will cost you something. What's it going to cost you? This is the outline. What does it cost you to follow Christ? What does it cost you to follow Christ? What, it, what does it cost you to be content with this mission? It's going to cost you, first of all, your physical safety. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Well, I don't know about you, but fleeing from town to town, running from people, isn't necessarily what I think of as a happy experience, you know, a good time. But it is an inspiring mission to think that, we don't necessarily um, say something that people are going to like, but we say something that is effective. When you give the gospel, it's affecting people. It's sometimes hardening people up to hate you. 
and um, to come after you. And sometimes it's causing people to receive the message and they will love you for it. But Jesus is saying here, when you go to one town in Galilee, you apostles, you're going to go to um, Jews and Gentiles, specifically Jewish towns that were surrounding the Sea of Galilee. It was very Gentile populated there too. But when you go from town to town, when one town shuts the door and they're, they're coming after you, it's fine. I'm giving you permission to go to another town and preach the gospel. I think that's important. It's important to understand that our mission doesn't end with sort of a victim mentality. We're we're called to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, to be those who navigate our mission with, with, um, with intelligence, with strategy. We're giving the gospel. I was talking to a lady after first hour who heard this message, and she said, I don't know if I'm doing what I need to be doing because it's illegal for me to preach Christ specifically to the children that are in my care. And so what do I do? Do I obey God rather than man? These are the kinds of questions I get. This is the kind of trouble I get into by preaching a message like this. And I mean, the answer is you have to be wise. You have to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. You're not trying to get yourself in trouble. Oftentimes, Paul will say we, we live a life that is so salty and so, so, so different and so compelling that people will ask you why you did what you did or where you are coming from. Or maybe you could say, hey, where do you worship? And then they say, well, where do you worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I mean, there are ways to bring people into a conversation that's a wise way to do it that isn't necessarily breaking the law or stirring trouble But we have to have a mentality that we're there for a reason. And sometimes when you give the gospel, people are going to try to put pressure on you and squeeze you. And it's not wrong to be squeezed. When you choose a life like this and you see your life as somewhere where God puts you. This is something I've been thinking about very personally. Where has God placed me? What is my life supposed to be? Where am I going to be going in the next 10 or 15 years? And I'm I'm well contented to be here. And to serve Christ as long as he wants me to here. To give the gospel and to plant a flag here. And to preach truth to you as a flock. And to the surrounding place all through Alaska. Why? Because God chooses where you live. He chooses who you talk to. He chooses the relationships that you um, create and enjoy. And he also chooses the mission for which you will be persecuted under. It happens. It happens. He's in charge of this. We are not in charge of this. And when you see it this way, your place, your location, your mission becomes very significant. It says they'll persecute you in one town. Dioko is persecuted. They'll follow you. They'll run after you in one city and then the next. What's causing this is not your geography. It's not how you dress. It's not, you know, the exact place or who you're talking to as much as the message. The message is always what stirs the trouble. So is it correct to run? Is it cowardly to run? Aren't we supposed to stay and fight? Oh, well, not with reckless bravado, not with the idea that being a martyr is more sanctified or more holy than not, or being persecuted is or not. We, we don't want to do that. We just give Christ. We give the message. We let the chips fall, and we try to keep giving the message. I remember um, the story of the early apostles and and Peter and and how they were beaten for the name of Christ, beaten for the sake of Christ by the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts. And then they rejoiced because they they were beaten and they were persecuted for the sake of the name. Do you remember that? 
But it wasn't that they just stayed there and stayed there to ultimately be killed. They kept moving. They kept giving and going as much as they possibly could. I mean, Stephen was martyred. James in Acts chapter 12 was martyred. That was providentially timed, but that's not always the case. Remember Jesus' ministry as he gave the gospel at the end of Acts chapter 8, I believe it was, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, meaning Pharisees, I'm God. I'm God. I transcend Abraham. Abraham, you think he's your father? Really? God is in charge of all of this, and I transcend Abraham. I'm bigger than he is. You're your father, the devil. Anyway, he was rushed for saying things like this and forced all the way to a cliff at one point to be thrown off into the rocks and he navigated through them and spared his own life. Why? Because it wasn't time for him to die on the cross yet. His death was time synchronized according to God the Father's plan with what? With the Passover. And so he was to die as the ultimate Paschal lamb during the Passover. I know you... You're geeking out on all of this stuff, right, as Bible students. But that's exactly what Jesus was all about. He was working according to God's timetable. So I can't tell you exactly what to do in your workplace or how you're supposed to do it. But does anybody at all know that you're a Christian there? You should ask yourself that question. Do they know that you sing songs that you say, not I, but Christ who lives in me? That's what life is about. Do they know? You say, how do I get them to know? I don't know. I can't figure that out necessarily for you, but there's probably a way. There's probably a way. And you just give the truth because God has you there for a reason. There's a time to to be careful. And I, I gave this analogy not too many weeks ago, but it was from a book called Why France Fell. It was where Winston Churchill was talking to a guy named Andre Moreau. And Basically, it was after um, the beginning of the Second World War, they were talking, they were reminiscing about how England had become inactive and unwilling in action. And Churchill said to Moreau, have you observed the habits of lobsters? You probably heard me say this before. Moreau said, no. Churchill went on and said, well, if you have the opportunity to study them, you should, because lobsters, they have a protective shell. And at the moment of molting, um, even the bravest crustacean will retire into a crevice or in a rock and wait patiently until they get a new um, shell, a new carapace that has time to grow. And then the new armor, when it's grown strong, um, they come out of their crevice and become once more a fighter. And he calls them the Lord of the Seas. There's a time for inaction that's wiser than action, a time to escape, and a time that that's wiser than action. So, We have to discern. We have to know when and how to navigate. And sometimes it has to do with our own strength of position, our own strength of heart. But we need to be careful to do this because when one door closes, another one will come and we speak the truth. I guess this is my my modus operandi. I mentioned it before. I'm a verbal processor. I say things out of my heart. This is how I... Minister, I do study, I have notes, I've thought some things through, but I just preach, I just share Christ, I just want to, because I'm duty-bound by the Lord to give the gospel. And I'm not trying to hurt people, but I'm trying to pierce through hard hearts with truth so that there'll be conversions, salvation. That's what we're about. Uh, Paul's mission was that, that was his heart cry He knew from whence he had come. He knew who he was before he was saved. He was dead and then brought to life. He was a Pharisee, and then he became a humble slave, a slave to all, to win people for Christ. 1 Corinthians 9, I want to just redirect your attention this morning a little bit to his testimony, because what would Paul say about some of these 
um, gospel opportunities that we have out here today. And I want to go from preaching to meddling for a second, just to get your attention to bring up some things that are extremely awkward to talk about, probably. But, I mean, there are people who take the vaccine, people who don't take the vaccine. Do I have your attention? Okay, there, there are people whose jobs are threatened because they are taking the vaccine or unwilling to take the vaccine. There are people who are supervisors who have to adjudicate these things in terms of what they're being handed out and told to do. And these are turbulent times, especially when your, your livelihood is on the line, right? When, you're, when, when you could say, man, my provision is going to dry up if I do or don't, and I have personal convictions about either way. And you have your own personal conviction about what you should do or not do, but I want you to base your conviction on the right thing, not the wrong thing. A lot of people will base their conviction on taking the vaccine or not based on whether or not they feel like their American liberty and freedom is in jeopardy or not. And I guess that would be something really worth dying for if this life was all that there was, but it's not. Am I trying to be anti-American? No, I love America. I love freedom preaching. I love the joy of preaching the gospel. I love my life. I love where I live. I love the, the military men and women who have sacrificed both in life and death to give me this freedom. It is a joy. I told recently, I said we were on a, my wife and I were on a plane flight landing and, um, they were announcing the fact that there was a family on board with a fallen soldier in the hull of the plane that had come back to Alaska to be buried. And I mean, we're all clapping. We're all crying over that. We all feel it deeply. We know um, the sacrifice of uh, what's been given to us. But I do want to say at the same time that there's also a high mission and higher mission in view of eternity. There are people on both sides of all issues that are dying and going to hell if we don't give them the message. And the metaphor of military in the Christian fight to fight the good fight of faith is a good one. We need to go out there as God's soldiers. And if you're in military, serve, serve as a Christian in, in that regard, in, in that dual role where you are serving in God's institution to give us freedom. But at the same time, you're praying for, as your testimony is on display that you want people to be one to Christ through whatever occupation or other, whatever field you're in. You're a gospel citizen and a gospel soldier for his glory. So what does that look like, especially in the case of a vaccine? Well, just make the decision in view of the gospel. Do whatever you do, deferring or, or, or taking or whatever. I, I, first hour, I um, you know, stumbled into joking around saying, I'm just going to take a shot at this. Anyway, but I mean, you get the point. Anyway, but I'm just trying to say, do what you do for the glory of God. Do what you do not to preserve your own temporal freedoms as much as you would do something to save people in view of eternity. That's what you want to do. You say, how do I get this? Well, what would Paul do in this situation? 1 Corinthians 9. Look here at verse 14. He's talking all about being an apostle and how he didn't even take money for his occupation in the gospel. He could have, but he deferred it. It says in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You can do that. Um, there are elders who are worthy of double honor, who are set apart to study, to show themselves approved, to give the word of God, and they have full-time vocational ministry like I do. And he said he could have had that, 
But he deferred that. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What is he boasting in self? No, he wants to give the gospel. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Laid upon him by whom? By the Lord. Listen to this. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What's he saying? A woe judgment is an eternal damnation judgment. He's saying, I feel like I deserve hell if I can't preach the gospel. That's what he's saying. Woe to me. I'm undone before God if I can't give the gospel. That's Christian living. That's where it's exciting. I have to give the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Woe to him. Verse 17, for I do this, if I do this of my own will, I have no reward, but... If not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. What was his currency? His currency was not money. His currency was gospel preaching. That's what he wanted to do. I give it free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant. That's the word slave. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to give up my rights. I'm going to give up my money rights. I'm going to give up my religious rights. I'm going to act like people in their own convictions and, and relate to them in their own mindset so I can reach them for Christ. Does that mean you're supposed to do something that you wouldn't want to do, you know, based on the Bible? No, you have to follow your own convictions, but you have to follow your own convictions in view of gospel preaching. You say, how do I do that? Well, this is what Paul said. This is how he did it. Um, And it's radical. He says it was a it was a life of deference. He was always deferring whether you're a stronger brother and you can you can do something that other people would say no no I can't do that or you're a weaker brother and you go I can't do that I would never do that that would be horrible you know you're entertaining thoughts of doing things that you wouldn't do otherwise and you're entertaining thoughts of not doing things that you would otherwise have the freedom to do I don't know exactly how I said that but you get what I mean there we go it is it's it's an amazing thing the conscience and thinking that through A stronger or weaker brother, you can absorb what you would not choose. A weaker or stronger brother, you can abstain for for what you would otherwise do freely. It's incredible. Listen to what he did. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Remember, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was delivered out of all this legalism, out of all this pressure. And he says, in order to win the Jews, I became like that again. Not violating his conscience, not breaking what God wanted him to do or not. He did everything he could do, though, to defer his rights to give the gospel. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. There's people who, who really push the envelope. They're in the gray areas, and I'll, I'll go into that area with them. I won't break the law of Christ. I'm not going to sin, but I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to overlook things that otherwise make me uncomfortable so that I can give them the gospel. Do you see this passion? People get very passionate about their personal rights, their individualism and their freedoms. But a lot of times we need to spin it on its head and say, where am I going to invest my passion? Where am I going to go for it? 
And I think we need to think this through because we're trying to win people to Christ, going from town to town. We'll go on with this, verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Who's the Savior? Well, he's saying he's the Savior here, right? No, God is the Savior. God's the one who redeems the hearts. He can only do the soul surgery. But he uses us as instruments. He uses our mouths, our lips, our actions, our attitudes, our conversations. You're going to hear this at Worship in the Round in a week on that evening with this couple that's going to come. And they're going to individually be baptized. And it's going to talk about how one person at one situation came in and preached the gospel. And he, he, was, he was there giving his heart, giving his, himself self-sacrificially. And then that person heard and that person believed and brought it home. And then that person began to believe and was stirred to have this conversation and that. And then suddenly you have a household of faith. How does this happen? It happens instrumentally through conversations through us if we're available. We should populate this place, not with visitors, but with new believers. It's like a family that's having children. That's how churches should grow as we minister to people, as we give the gospel, we preach Christ. Is this crazy talk? Listen, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This is the blessing of the gospel work. You say, Well, I'm still doubting that this is the life God has called me to. We'll go back to Matthew 10 and look at the next verse. Why can we live this way? Why can we live this crazy life? Look now at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. The word disciple means learner. You're not above your teacher, nor a slave. The word doulos is there. The master-slave motif is right here in the Bible to teach us something. There were people back then who had no rights. They were willing slaves underneath a master, willing servants. I've heard it said, you know, uh, you can't leave a certain job because the benefits are too good. And then you have the golden handcuffs and you're there. And that's so healthy. That doesn't sound healthy to me at all. Gold, any handcuffs on anything. doesn't. I would rather, much rather say, no, no, I am willingly putting myself here or there right? Then everything changes. It's not handcuffs. It's joy. It's not prison. It's prison ministry. Um, Paul was in jail and he's like, man, I'm on the mission field. I'm winning people for Christ because he put me here to do this or that. It's the comfort of contentment where you say, I'm Christ's slave. And that's why I act and do and live in the way that I do it. You're not above being like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. Verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. Well, that's the first point. The first point is you'll come under um, physical duress. Your physical safety will be threatened. That's what you can lose. Secondly, your personal reputation, your personal reputation, your rep. Everybody is shocked when people talk about you behind your back, when they malign you. What about if they call you the devil? If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, Lord of the flies, meaning of Satan, how much more will they malign, speak ill of you, speak lies about you of those of his household? If they're going to talk about Jesus this way, what do you think they're going to do about his slaves? I mean, Jesus had some fail-safes in himself because he was doing miracles and people liked his miracles. He was very popular. They loved him, but they also hated him and people turned on him. 
But we can't do any of that stuff. We're not giving people things. We just give the gospel and we are just flat offensive as his slaves. So why do we think we deserve better treatment or will get treated any better than Jesus was? What are they going to call us? They're going to call us Satan. They're going to call us the devil. They may or may not use this term Beelzebul. They may not call you Satan exactly, but they will call you the origin of evil. That's Satan. They will call you the problem. That's Satan in people's minds. They will call you, in essence, the devil. You're the problem. You're the reason why things are going horribly. You're the reason I feel badly. And really what you're doing is you're just giving them truth. You're just helping them see Jesus. You're helping them find a way to have the forgiveness of their sins. You're finding a way for them to get to heaven as you speak truth. And this is at risk of your personal reputation. You'll be maligned. Personal reputation. You have to be prepared for this. The social justice warrior movement will deny this premise altogether and say that you don't deserve to be maligned. You should never be evil spoken of. This is abuse. This is um, a false situation where, you know, there it's, you know, leadership that is oppressive over you because of your ethnicity, because of your um, pay scale, because of your background. These are the things that, that, you know, Christians even today will say, well, this kind of mistreatment where you are, where you're being maligned, where you're being lied about, this is not okay. This is, you're a victim of oppression. What is true? People are oppressed because of background, ethnicity, status. People believe they deserve equal or better treatment. People are victims of oppression. And the Bible is against people sinning against each other in terms of hatred. James chapter 2 talks about if the poor man comes in the temple, don't treat them any differently than you would a rich man. Don't oppress people in that way. There's a sin of partiality. There's the sin of um, hatred within um, the, even that was happening in the early church. We talked about all of this uh, weeks and weeks ago where Peter, he um, distanced himself in the early church from eating with the Gentile new converts. He was a Jew, and he, he kind of recycled back into this and became separating. Um, in, he, he began to separate himself from a certain ethnic group, and Paul confronted him to the face and said, that's out of bounds. The gospel puts us all together. So yeah, the Bible teaches us not to hate, but also not to hate, but to also fully love within the body of Christ. So I understand that. But at the same time, let me just say this. Don't be shocked when people hate you in the world because you love the truth. And they'll blame all kinds of things for why they hate you. But really, they hate the truth. And we have to give the truth. We have to give the truth and be okay with that. And rejoice for fighting the good fight of faith. Why? Because God cast a greater vision than our temporal world. Where do we see this? Look at verse 26. Why are we supposed to not be afraid? It says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The word fear is repeated in this paragraph. Um, don't be afraid of your accuser. Why? Because there's a bigger reality going on than just this temporal one. 
Then this movement of who is a victim and who is not, who's leveraging victimhood and who is not. That's a constant discussion in the culture today. And I'm asking you to lift your heart above that and say, listen, I'm going to be oppressed. Wherever I am on the social justice issue war that's going on, I'm going to be oppressed. I'm going to be maligned. I'm going to be ill-spoken of. I could be in physical danger for preaching the gospel. I'm going there. So how do I get my head around what's really going on? You have to see that God in the future is going to rip the band-aid off on this world. And everything is going to be exposed. Things that are done in dark are going to be brought into the light. Things that are whispered are going to be proclaimed. God in the end is the judge of judges. Look again at verse 26. Have no fear of them. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed. That's the band-aid coming off. Or hidden that will not be known. It's all going to be seen. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. When they're quiet, be bold. When they whisper, proclaim, do the opposite. Why? Don't fear the, those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. I mean, you can have some level of fear and trepidation of, I guess, physical harm, but that can't be the guiding rule of your life. There's things that people can do to you physically, but they can't do anything to your soul. But God is the God of all judgment and all authority who is going to ultimately rule over everything, even in terms of hell and sending people there. You say bodily, yes, and spiritually. Because in the end, in John 5, it says there's a resurrection of life to life and death to death. There's a resurrection of life to heaven. Eternal life, physical joy, physical blessing. We believe in that. We love the streets of gold. We love the marriage supper of the Lamb. We love eternal bliss. We're going to be there. But at the same time, that great incomprehensible reality is in a binary contrast with eternal hell, where the worm dies not, where people are eaten in their flesh forever, where they're burning forever, where they're fully conscious and fully separated from God. And it's there and it's unquenchable and it's real and it is forever. It's the lake of fire for the devil and his angels and all of those who in this life will not repent. And we have the message that's a higher message of American freedoms. It's a higher message of what's going to happen to us in the workplace. It's a higher message of whether or not people are being oppressed here and there throughout the world and in our country. All those things can matter. But the ultimate mission that Jesus is laying at the apostles' feet is give the gospel. Why? Because judgment is coming. Well, who is the judge? Jesus. Who is the Lord over heaven? Jesus. Who is the Lord over hell? Jesus is. We are putting our whole soul's confidence in the hands of this judge who has it all. He has our eternity set in heaven forever. No one can snatch us from the Father's hands. We have an incredible inheritance awaiting for us. And at the same time, Jesus is the Lord over those who will be judged forever and ever. The difference is when people believe the message that we are entrusted to give. People will accuse us in secret, but it will all be uncovered in the end. They'll slander us, but we will speak aloud. They'll whisper against us. We will preach Christ. This brings us to the third and final point. It's um, First point is, you're, what do you stand to lose if you're content in Christ and you're on this mission? You're the slave that's no better than the master. You're going to live the Jesus life. What do you lose? Well, physical safety. 
Secondly, personal reputation. Thirdly, a practical mindset. A practical mindset. I'm not just trying to be cute with three Ps, but it kind of works. We'll see. Physical safety, personal reputation, and a practical mindset. Another way to put it is you're going to risk your safety, your security, and your sanity. Practical mindedness is where you say, look, I work a job. I want to keep my job. I want to feed my family. I want to you know, live out my days and give my best, um, best shot at um, a healthy, happy life. That's just the practical American dream way of thinking. Um, the biblical way of thinking is, look, I'm going to risk my physical safety and my reputation for the sake of Christ to win souls. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And Jesus is going to comfort me with something that sounds insane that is truly the mind of Christ. We forfeit the practical mindset by going for the comfort that Jesus gives us here. What comfort are we... um, are we talking about? We'll look back at the text. It says, You don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's an incomprehensible thought. God is in charge of our heaven, He's also in charge of hell. It's incomprehensible to think about how much He loves us, though, in view of Him being in charge. God is this incredibly austere and powerful eternal judge, right? But at the same time, he's not only that in the macro, he's in the micro um, sort of detailed experiences and everything about you, um, ness of your life. He loves you. He knows you intimately. As incomprehensible as he is in terms of heaven and especially in terms of eternal judgment and hell, that's so unfathomable, right? That's so infinite in view of our finitude. At the same time, that incomprehensibility of God can be applied in terms of how incomprehensibly rich it is that he loves you so specifically with such great great detail and specificity. His love is this big. It's as big as incomprehensible heaven, and his love is applied in that incomprehensibility to your own individual life right here in time and space. It's amazing. That's what Jesus does here for the apostles. He goes, from, he goes from talking about hell, and then he goes to verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not. Remember, he's talking, don't fear your accusers. The band-aid's going rip, to get ripped off. He's judge. He's Lord over heaven and hell. And then he goes back here again. He goes, fear not, therefore. You are not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Think about creation. You're thinking about immeasurable wrath. Well, now think about the immeasurable love that Christ has for you, just like he does caring for a bird that hops. Uh, A lot of commentators will translate this, a bird falling to the ground or a sparrow falling as a bird literally hopping around. Um, I like to walk back and forth, my wife and I do, between our house and here. And there's oftentimes, especially on trash day, the ravens um, cackling to each other. And it's, it's just kind of odd and, and unique and wild. It's interesting to see birds flying around or hopping around. They're soulless creatures. They really are. Um, they, it's, it's, I, but they're enjoyable creatures, nevertheless. There's a lot of enjoyment in animals, especially in our own household. And uh, it's fun to watch animals... Um, hop around. But ask yourself why they are there. Are they there 
for eternal reasons? Well, they're not eternal, but God is eternal and God speaks through his creation. So watch this. Every time a bird jumps or a bird cackles, we can think about God and how much he cares about that. He's enjoying that animal doing that. He's enjoying an animal Flying through the air. He's enjoying an animal singing a song. Why? Because God sings and God is great big and God is showing us things to enjoy so that we will enjoy him and enjoy his particular care about us. Why does God feed the birds? He feeds the birds so he can validate his promise that he will feed you. He'll provide for you. I preached at one point, I think in... um, The Sermon on the Mount, how God, don't worry, don't be anxious for what you're going to eat because God provides for the birds. And I made the point that birds don't sit down with a to-do list and calendar on Outlook Express and say, this is how I'm going to pay my bills and this is how I'm going to feed my family. And this is, no, they just fly around, they chatter, they protect things and then go get food and God provides and then they bring it home. That um, sadly is more kind of like how our crash budget works a lot of times with six kids and two dogs. I mean, you just kind of go for it and you, you slop the hogs and you say, eat. Here they are. Here it is. And if you miss your moment, the food is gone. It's incredible. Whether for cleaning crew or just somebody grabbed your slice of pizza because you left it just a little bit too long. That's how we roll. But, that, but, but all of the animals are, are provided for to show us God's provision. All the animals are seen and known. Every hair on the head, every hair on the face is known. God's ways are high and holy and immeasurable. But all of that is applied with great detail and great care. And these apostles are told this because they're going into a treacherous and dangerous and hostile environment to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to have their, their safety threatened, to have their character maligned, to be whispered about in the dark. Why? So that they can trust God all the more in a way that practical thinking doesn't really work. I'm preaching the gospel at risk of things and God is caring for me as he watches birds hop around, as he knows the number of hairs on our head. He's, he's valuing us far beyond the sparrows. This is God's love for us. Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. That's not just, that's not just something to... A statement about God being incomprehensibly big, that's talking about God's incomprehensible love in that chapter of Isaiah 55. John Calvin said, there's nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. He's different than we are. He's one to be feared. He's one to be loved. He loves us to every last detail. Our world wants us to miss this moment. Our world wants us to believe that their practical mindset should be our practical mindset. I wrote a blog about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his nouveau trend. I'm no expert on any of this stuff, but his nouveau trend uh, where he's talking about meta. And some of you have heard about that. It's basically his power slogan of his money and his organization, his company, where he's trying to create more and more a hologramic Um, reality where people will put glasses on or goggles on in virtual reality and see things that aren't really there. Imagine that. Good-natured people, good-hearted people wanting us to see things that aren't there so we will buy things that aren't there. It's amazing. Follow the money on that, right? 
Well, it's a dangerous reality, um, anything that is man-made um, and from the world. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because people are sinners driven with sinful desires to distract us. And I believe we're trying to be um, one to a world that's not really there, to obfuscate or fog up the glasses and not really see the truth and, and, and go to virtual reality instead of true reality. What's true reality? True reality is the two realms. There are two realms, not real and virtual. The two realms of reality are um, natural and spiritual, physical and spiritual, right? The outer man and the inner man, right? The outer man is our physical body, our physical realm, our physical existence. And then there's the inner man. This is uh, knowing the mind of Christ. This is um, our, our spiritually um, renewed hearts where we can know the Lord, where we're illuminated by the Holy Spirit and we can see Jesus through the eyes of faith. We see both realities of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities that are mentioned in Colossians 1. All things are created by him and for him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not height, death, angels, principalities. That's angels and demons. All that realm is real and active and happening right now. Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone for whom he may devour. There's heaven and there's earth. And this concomitant reality is all part of God's creation and design that's happening all at the same time. And all you have to do to see that reality is look through the media of scripture, holy media. This is holy inspired writ that gives us the glasses to see these realms that are happening to us at the same time. My fear is that um, virtual reality, and I'm not just talking about video gaming or gamers, but people who buy into a virtual reality where they're going to buy things by looking through glasses and, and see things that aren't there. I'm going to buy a painting that's created by zeros and ones and pay $700 to see it on my wall, but then it's not really there. That kind of weirdness that's happening this day is uh, trying to confuse people and make them drift into dreamlike confusion. And go into error, I think. I'm not just trying to be a conspiracy theorist. I am trying to prove the point that we need to be vigilant and alert to see things for what they really are. I was uh, awakened the other night, I think 3.30 in the morning, by my phone because it heard me say that I was looking for something. And it gave me a radar program that just went up and said, hey, we can help find this and locate it now. Things are weird. Things are scary. Things are different than they were before. But what's really going to happen? What's really going to happen is, again, Matthew 10, verse 26. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. It's all the band-aids coming off. God is the judge. We have a clear mission. Don't be led astray by the wrong mission. Don't be drunk with the gateway drug of the World Wide Web. It's a satanic promise saying, look, you can have it all. You have it here. Um, You have access to everything. And you can do it in the privacy of your own mind. And nobody will know what you're looking at or what you're involved in or what what Kool-Aid you're drinking. Nothing could be further from the truth. God knows everything. Everything is uncovered. He sees you where you are. He sees you in your mind's eye. He sees you behind your VR glasses. He knows it all. He knows your heart. But as a Christian, that shouldn't scare us. That should become grace because through the grace of the gospel, we want him to know us. We want him to see us. We live before the face of God. We live quorum Deo. 
He knows everything, and we want him to know us, and we want to know him. You know, if God gave people the justice that they're crying out for, they would get hell, wouldn't they? Everybody wants justice. I want justice. But justice before holy God is hell. But we've been given justice because it's been met at the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could rejoice in a Lord that gives us a mission this hard. And we could find the comfort of his tender, loving mercy in our own life because we know that I am his and he is mine, right? Let's go on this mission together. Don't, don't shirk your responsibility. Don't flinch this week when you have that opportunity to give the gospel. You'll know it when you see it. I know I, I live in a Christian world, a Christian environment, but you give the gospel. You say hard things nevertheless all the time because people need it and they're changed because of it.